Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where we discuss the issues that impact food, fuel, fiber, farming, the industry that we love so much. If you were with me on the last episode, I'm assuming you were, that was part one with Jason Lusk. Jason Lusk is the department head of agricultural economics at Purdue University. That's my alma mater. And we spent a little too much time talking about Purdue. So you know what? In part two, we're going to go right at it. He's also an author. This is not your average professor. If you join me for part one, you know that. This dude speaks. He's actually smart. He doesn't dress like a professor. He, he goes to burger joints. I think he's okay. He's a Texan, so we're still figuring that out. He's fairly unloud un for a Texan, frankly. He's written The Food Police, a well-fed manifesto about the politics of your plate and unnaturally delicious, how science and technology are serving up superfoods to save the world. Jason, when we left off last time, we were talking about an interview in a, oh, shall we say, more altruistic uh, food publication than realistic. Uh, they talked about soda taxes. I've been all over this since January 1st when Seattle implemented their soda tax. Okay, they don't work. Philadelphia tried it, Chicago tried it, Seattle's tried it, I think it's parts of California have tried it. People leave the city limits and go to where soda pop is cheaper. Also, the idea behind soda taxes, they will tell you, is to make poor people that are obese less obese. Well, all it really does is hurt them because they won't give up their soda pop, they'll just pay more for it. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, I think um, people are proposing a soda tax to solve this big obesity problem. And I think, you know, the vast majority of the evidence suggests it's it going to have very small effects. I mean, I'm, I don't want to say it's not going to have any effect. You know, you increase the price of something high enough, some people are going to cut back. But um, if you actually look at soda consumption over time, people, you know, soda consumption has actually been falling uh, over time due to, you know, a variety of factors. Um, and soda pop hit its zenith. It hit its high. Just to give you a quick little listener, you're, you're saying, all right, Damien, give me some expansion on that. And I will. 2006 was the high water mark for canned soda pop, bottled soda pop in the United States of America. 2006 was the high. And that's when uh, then it started going down. Uh, and you're saying, is it because of the sugar? Even diet soda is losing uh, gallons, losing ounces of consumption, which is why Diet Coke, Coca-Cola company, rolled out four new flavored Diet Cokes. They're putting them in a skinny can to try and differentiate their product in the marketplace. So soda pop is probably going to die with or without the taxes. Not die, but go down in consumption. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, on, the, on the evidence side, you know, most, most of the studies I've seen suggest just, you know, we can expect very little uh, impacts from them. But you know, people will quibble about the evidence. So I think it's in some ways more instructive to think about um, sort of the, just the, the underlying philosophy of what's trying to, what, what we're trying to do here. And one thought is, you know, how, how is it, you know, what, what's your theory for how making something more expensive makes people better off? So, you know, one of the, one of the things we teach in economics is that, um, is that, that people are happier when they pay lower prices. And, and so, it's a little unclear how, how we think it is that by making something more expensive that we're making people better off. Sure, we need to, you know, maybe we need to fund, we need taxes to pay for roads and schools, um, but, but there are a lot of ways we can raise taxes in a more efficient manner than, than taxing soda. So just at a fundamental level, it's unclear, um, you know, how we think a tax is gonna make people better off. But th there's also sort of these equity concerns too. You, you alluded to it a little bit. Um, if you look at food consumption, you know, poor consumers spend a much higher percentage of their income on food than richer consumers. You know, the data I have, if you're 
sort of 150,000 above, you're definitely spending more than 10% of your income on food. If you're 40,000 or below, you may be spending 20, 30% of your income on food. So when we tax food, implicitly we're taxing some of the least fortunate among us in society. So not only is this question about, are we making people better off, but the people we're actually harming are off. It's a very, what we would call a regressive tax. It's a, a tax imposed on, on some of the least fortunate society. So it's sort of a, a double whammy uh, in terms of the impacts. You know, and it is, and I think we should also point out, say you're listening to this and you're like, hey, you know, what is the deal on all these taxes? They are not pushed through by any stretch of the imagination. Do not pretend it was ever to fund infrastructure. I mean, Jason pointed out, we do need taxes, so we have bridges, okay, we get that. None of these taxes on fat or on soda or sugar, and I see more of this coming. My, my big point is I believe there will be lawsuits because the industry has been demonized. Corn syrup and sugar are the new tobacco. You've heard me talk about this before if you've been in one of my presentations, and the way that works is you demonize it, you tax it, tax it, tax it, attack it, and then sue it. That's what happened with tobacco, and I see that happening on corn sugar. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, well, corn syrup, corn sugar. The other part I should point out is these taxes were never pushed with the idea we're going to build better bridges because of the tax. It was all really about a punitive or to change a behavior. It's a syntax. Yeah, I think, you know, there's some of the debates, particularly in places where this has been on the ballot, are a bit disingenuous because it's it's often pitched as a tax on so then we'll use the proceeds from those tax to fund, say, child education programs. Yeah. Well, if you want to fund child education programs, make the case on its own merits. Um, you know what, uh, and, and make and raise that revenue in a more efficient manner, and and so and, and if you look at the practical reality of, of even like say how tobacco taxes have been used often, what the evidence shows they've gone to, to plug holes in budgets, not for the sort of health and education programs that were promised. So I think you know coupling those two things, it, it's it's effective politics, but I think it's a bit a bit disingenuous. Wait a minute. Are you here on the business of agriculture podcast for one moment, pretending that politicians are disingenuous? I don't think anyone has ever heard such a thing. Yeah. All right. I, I, I want to I make one more point there too. And this, this gets a little bit to some of those debates as people say, well, we got to tax sugar. And uh, what I like to point out to people is we do, uh, we just do it in a very um, uh, unobvious way. Um, it, uh, so for example, cane sugar, uh, we, have import tariffs, we have qu import quotas that drive up the price of, of sugar uh, so that we don't get it from other countries. If you look at corn uh, syrup, we have a variety of ethanol policies over, over time that have directed more of our corn supply to ethanol rather than to uh, food supply. And so implicitly, uh, actually, we do indeed tax sugar. It's just not obvious that we do it. Uh, and by the way, let's give a little love to beet sugar because you just talked about corn syrup and you just talked about cane sugar. I have a bunch of clientele over the years that are sugar beet people. If you're listening, sugar beet people, know that I love you. Just, just know that I love you. Whether Jason talks about you or not, I love you. Okay, let's move on here on the Business of Agriculture podcast where we talk about important stuff. Jason Lusk my guest book writer as he is you should check him out he's got a good website i think it's just jasonlust.com isn't it yeah. yeah it's just my name i have a y in my name jason so that uh, i don't know what my parents were thinking but uh, if you're looking for him you need the y in jason all right he's an academic but he's really not a pure academic which is why he's on this show we don't bring on pointy-headed professors to talk about grain charts we talk about issues you are in academia you are at purdue university I know that when I was there graduating in 1992, I took the economics classes and I took the food science classes and I took the you know, communication and the chemistry and the biology, all the things that I had to take. But you know what I never took? I never took a class about contemporary issues or how to communicate 
agriculture's um, goodness. Are we doing that now? Because it seems like it's a different time. When I was there, there weren't pro they protested the veal barns. They protested uh, if um, Union Carbide dumped chemicals in a river in Delhi and killed a bunch of people in India. They didn't protest the guy that's out here with his wife trying to just raise hogs or, or the man and his, and his wife that are in, in Nebraska just growing corn. And that has now become a target. Are we addressing this in academics in places like Purdue? Yes, although there's a couple of forces that are making that challenging. So, you know, what you what you will see if you come to a place like Purdue and other land grant universities where I've worked is that there are there are classes uh, that are being offered in sort of contemporary ag issues, often through ag communications, sometimes through animal science departments. One of the things we've done here in the Department of Ag Econ, which I think has been a, a really good, is to um, for our freshman students to offer uh, a course where they have the opportunity to go visit agribusinesses, go go in one of those hog barns. I, I took a group of 20, um, about 20 freshmen, uh, none of whom had ever been on a hog farm out to a, a hog slaughter facility. I was a little worried about how that would go, but <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think I, I converted anybody to uh, vegetarianism. But but the thought here is we have you know fewer people that come from a farm background. Um, we, we saw a very healthy uh, undergraduate program, one of the largest in the country, one of the largest in the College of Ag, but still our students that are showing up here today have very little connection with production ag. Some, a lot of them do, don't. Well, let's talk about that real yeah. quick, Jason. When I was there, I would say that 85, 95% of the School of Agriculture was farm kids. I do get the publications. I did read a publication from Purdue that said we are now at a point where half or over half of the School of Agriculture at Purdue is not from a farm background. Two reasons, I assume. First off, we ran out of farm kids. There's less farmers and they have less numbers of children. I'm one of nine. And also the farms have con you know, conglomerated and, and whatnot and merged. And then there's just less kids. But uh, is it also because we brought in biotech and some sciences into the School of Agriculture? Yeah, that's that's partly it. Even, you know, uh, in, you know, you mentioned environment earlier, you know, there's, there's more interest in environment development, you know, those, those, and so we've had to adjust to the demands of our students so we can stay relevant. Um, and yeah, and the actual, you know, the physical sciences, uh, and that's a lot of where ag is heading is sort of sensing and big data and uh, precision ag, biotechnology, all those require a whole set of new skills that students are coming in you know in today and so we have to stay on top of those the, the other part of this thing you know it's one of the other dimensions that's happening on college campuses that I want to go back to is um, yeah you see College of Ag ags around the country responding to these issues by offering courses and trying to prepare students to engage on these issues but what you also see is the history department and the political science department you know offering their own food courses and in a way in some ways it's, it's good you know there's this kind of renewed interest in food and ag people you know have this passion about where food and ag comes from that passion is coming not just from within ag from without ag and so that that's a lot of great opportunities but there's a lot of frustration there too because we're competing with courses all over campus um and and they're often providing a very different perspective and so that that's a that's a challenge for us i, I pulled out the course catalog at Harvard from a couple of years ago and just browse that catalog. You, you can find almost a dozen courses on food and ag. Um, which, is, which is cool that they're doing that. The bad part is I'm, I'm thinking that they're probably not teaching it the same way with the same angle that we are at our land grant universities. They're probably more uh, going down the Michael Pollan route of telling everyone that, uh, that uh, agriculture is killing us, even though it's 
as you and I both know, fostered all of human advancement for the last 10,000 years. Yeah, what, you know, one of the motivations for me writing the Food Police book was uh, several years ago, I'd asked to give a talk uh, on campus. This is, you know, land-grant university, and, um, and this was to all the TAs for the English composition course. So there were you know, 100 or so TAs in there because all the freshmen have to take this class. And um, I went over there. I thought I was going to talk to them about writing. But when I got there, I, I did talk about that. But then they started asking me questions about food and ag. And through a series of questions, I realized, oh, they're requiring all the freshman students to watch Food, Inc. This is a land-grant university, rural America, um, and every freshman student coming in there was going to watch Food, Inc. because it's what our English department had decided to do. And so that's when I really realized that, you know, the perspective that we're giving our students, who all, in this case, all they had to do was look to see production ag, was just look out their door probably on the drive home, but they were being fed this message of how that, that ag was, you know, ruining the environment, that there were these agribusinesses that were poisoning them. And um, so yeah, even on our traditional land-grant ag campuses, it's a challenge to stay engaged in these conversations in a constructive way. I actually like speaking to uh, youth, not junior high or even high school necessarily, unless they were maybe potentially FFA, but at the level you're talking about, because I try and give them, hey, you're seeing this in your little microcosm, which is your life up until age 22. Let me give you some big picture perspective here. And um, I, I can give them what you just talked about, what's, what's happening and the forces against them. All right, I read one of your blogs, and ladies and gentlemen, they're listening. This is Jason Lusk. You can check him out at jasonlusk.com. He's got some interesting stuff out there. He and I both cover a few of the same topics. We've both spoken to some of the same audiences, but I liked his take on uh, disruptive trends in food and agriculture. He pinned this at the end of January. And a couple of them I won't comment on, but one for sure, because I was all over it. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal, a, a review of a book by a vegan, and the review was written by a vegan. So you've got a vegan writing a book that then is reviewed and frankly promoted by another vegan. And it was very positive about plant-based protein. In other words, veggie burgers. Um, I went on the point because they're labeling it clean meat. Now we get people want us to label everything in agriculture. Imagine the day you go to the meat counter and all it says is clean meat. Doesn't say grown in a lab. Doesn't seem petri petri dish protein, which is what I would more accurately label it. All right. You have a commentary about this and you also took your son out to dinner and you had a taste test with a regular burger and a plant-based. A guy from Texas, a guy from Texas, which is what you are, had a plant-based burger with his son and he compared it side by side at the same table with a regular burger. Talk to me about plant-based protein and the taste test with your son. Sure. So I actually have a chapter in my a Naturally Delicious book about these uh, some of this plant-based meat. Actually, the, the chapter there is more about this cell, you know, stem cell-based meat grown in a lab. Um, so I, you know, I may offend some of your listeners here, but I'm, I'm in some ways kind of excited about these technologies. Um, I think there's some reason to be less optimistic than than some folks are, but I, I think they're interesting, and I think the lesson for people in ag is this is where the competition is coming from. And you can't ignore it. I mean, it's it's there. Uh, it's not going to go away. And the, and and the, the the two things I think, if you if you there's a thought among some sort of traditional audiences that this is just kind of pie in the sky stuff. But uh, there are, there are literally millions of investment dollars flowing into this space right now, and some of it by companies like Tyson and Cargill, trying to get in there. So that this is you know 
as I mentioned in that blog post, a, a potentially disruptive technology. And all that's a bit of a lead in to say, um, you know, it's so it's, it's not only is it not a pie in the sky, I walked into a restaurant with my son and there this impossible burger was on the menu. Yeah, and, and now here's the thing. It also has money behind it. I, while I am a traditionalist, you know, we, I, I was in charge of the steer lot. We were dairy farmers, but every bull calf we had, we castrated and we put on a feed pen, and I was in charge of the steer lot from the time I was a little boy because it was not that hard to do. I was in charge of the steer pen, and we ate beef out of the freezer. By golly, we also raised a hog every year, and I was in hog 4-H. I was into normal meat. I've got a problem with petri dish protein, but as far as the consumer, the consumer – controls us. If the consumer wants Petri dish protein, that's fine. It has tremendous money behind it right now. Tyson and Cargill, as you point out, are investing in this to see if it will indeed become a reality, as is a guy named Bill Gates, who I think has more money than you and I. And then another gentleman named Richard Branson. That's the British guy with Virgin Airways, etc. He's got money behind it. Is it going to happen? Slowly, I think, you know, so back to the taste test with my son, I, I, I ordered the regular uh, beef burger um, and he ordered the impossible burger. So it's a burger made with uh, proteins that, that are made are kind of uh, a bit ironically enough uh, through genetic engineering uh, proteins that are produced by yeast that are, are more animal like. And um, uh, my, my regular beef burger was better, but the, certainly the best vegetarian burger I've ever had. Uh, and so it's, you know, the competition I think will be real, um, but it, Interestingly, you know, is, is this the same crowd that was against uh, GMOs? If they were, are they going to be against this this kind of GMO? I'm not sure. And, and a customer base like we have in North America that uh, tends to almost revolt over modern innovation in food production seems like how then are we going to then also say we got our herbs from a converted factory where they're raised in trays under, uh, you know, artificial lighting and we're now growing meat in a lab. So how is it, it seems like such a dichotomy between what is, uh, they're clamoring for natural and then they're also saying, oh, but I want this Petri dish protein. Notice yeah, me. for sure. And and so one thing that tells you is that there's not this monolithic consumer, <laughs> there's a lot of people out there. So there, there's gonna maybe be a niche of people who you know care about these these issues and are willing to pay for it. And you know some of the more natural crowd may not. Um, but I think, you know, on the economics of it, one of the interesting things at that restaurant was that this Impossible Burger was more expensive. Um, it was about a dollar, two dollars more expensive. And that, that actually should tell you a lot about the economics. So prices should reflect the resources that we, that are used to produce that burger. And if there was no cow, there was no calf, there was no hay field, there was no corn field to make silage, there was also no land used whatsoever other than a little bit of space in a lab. It does make one wonder why is it still more expensive? Is it just because of the R&D part of the innovation? That's probably part of it, but also, you know, you got to remember these, you know, these, um, you know, if it's yeast producing these, um, uh, proteins, those yeast have to eat something. Uh, it's like a fermentation. Uh, so, you know, the market for, I, I don't know what those yeasts are eating. It's probably proprietary technology, but they're being fed something. And one, one, again, I think one of the ironies of that is, um, are there distillers grains that come off of these processes? Yeah. Where, where, where are those going to be fed to? Right. Is there a byproduct from, from lab meat? Okay. You put in your disruptive trends in agriculture, which is interesting because this is stuff I talk about also. And if you're listening to this, dear listener to the Business of Agriculture podcast, we try to always cover stuff that you're hearing about and we're giving a perspective. Jason Lusk, online food buying. I've had several articles I've posted about this. I bet against them. 
Mm-hmm. Not for the long term, but for the short term. And I'll tell you why. This summer I'm driving along and I hear that Kroger has melted down 38%. The number one grocer, the number two seller of groceries, the number one grocery store behind Walmart, they sell a little less groceries. And I said, wait a minute, I shop at Kroger outlets. And I don't believe, because then 38% in one day, and then like another four days later, they melted down another 11. So they're off half. And I said to myself, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I am a comedian with an agricultural economics degree. And I said to myself, self, is the world going to stop buying food at Kroger in the next two years? The answer to myself was no. I bought Kroger for half off. And it has come up very nicely in spite of yesterday's tremendous meltdown on Wall Street. Online food buying, yes, long term, but I still say there's a customer experience and the consumer wants to go and touch what they eat, at least for the next two decades. Your thoughts? Uh, I think I think it won't be either or. I, I kind of agree with your assessment. There, there, there will always be something about being able to go pick out something on your own, and you you see that and demand for even uh, farmers markets and those kind of things. And, and so the, I don't think that that inherent desire to do that is going to go away. But on the margin, over time, you know, people will start buying their toilet paper and paper towels and diapers. You know, I think more and more online, and, and I think what what's gonna what's kind of changing is is the movement of companies like Amazon in, into this space and, and being able to bring their sort of you know supply chain integration, and that, that's really part of what I see as the potentially disruptive part is when you know when companies like that can exert some of their pressure on the food supply chain. Uh, now, now you're talking big business, and, and we already have seen that some with companies like Walmart. They haven't been quite as successful in moving to the online space. They're trying. I think they bought some people to try to move into it through uh, acquisitions. Ultimately, the consumer wins through these innovations. Uh, there, the only problem on our end is: does Amazon get so strong that they put their thumb down on on the production side and the supply side, and then all of a sudden we just become uh, which we all all work for other people. I point this out all the time. Do we become even more controlled? Are we the peasants that just provide the product for Amazon? Well, I, th- I think one way to look at that is if 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 you're a producer and you're not being proactive about how you can participate in this new uh, kind of world, you're not going to be a producer for very long. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And if you, if your model is I'm going to only sell into a commodity space, I'm not going to work for the quote unquote man. Um, there is no right to be able to, for somebody to have a open market for corn down at your local elevator. Um, that's the way it's worked in the past, but there's no guarantee that the future is going to operate that way. And so I think, you know, will it all move that way? I don't know, but I think your most progressive producers are going to find ways to um, supply these Amazons and Walmart supply chains with the kind of things they want. And, and, and they're going to get bigger. They're going to be more efficient. Um, and so I think, you know, if you want to stay in production ag, 20, 50 years from now, in you know, uh, you can't stay in your red barn and straw hat. And I know that's not a comfortable message for people, but it, by I think the way, it, listeners, you know what? I just, I, I, I did not coach Jason Lusk before this call. This sounds like stuff that you've heard from Damian Mason before. <laughs> that the nostalgic vision of Ma and Paul Kettle out there and their straw hat and bib overalls is cute. It's neat. It's also very derogatory and very backward for our industry. The producer of the future, the processor of the future, the food company of the future will continue to cater to the next niche, the next movement. Food in affluent countries such as where we live is a trend and a feeling more than it is about an economics issue or more importantly about sheer sustenance. We're not starving anymore. I agree. We need commodity players 
continue to get commoditized and commodities are sold on how cheap can you produce them and how cheap can you sell them. I don't know if that's where we want to be long term. I think value added is where we got to go. Amazon might help that, to be honest. Yeah, it could. Um, but they're not going to want to deal with, you know, 10,000 small producers. They're going to try to find um, the handful of people that can meet the specs they want. But yeah, well, they're going to try and find three so they can uh, pit them yeah. all against each other. <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the challenge. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, if, if you're in the commodity business, your your hope for high profits are basically you're hoping somebody else in the world has a drought or um, there's some bad policy somewhere. And, um, you know, that, that's just not the kind of uh, <laughs> you know, world that I think strategically long run that you want to be in. I agree with that. All right. Talking to Jason Lusk, the Agricultural Economics Department head at Purdue University. He's been a heck of a guest. This is the finishing parts of segment two, part two of our podcast, which we're going to call a visit with Jason Lusk, or maybe we'll call it the food police. Um, and also a lot of good information covered right there. One piece of advice. Okay, you're a smart guy. You travel around, you speak, you get in front of the university kids, you work for a university, you're on the go, you're around North America. A piece of advice or a piece of knowledge or anything, just one bit of tidbit you want to share with anybody in the business of agriculture listening to this show. Oh, goodness. I wasn't prepared for that one. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, one of the messages I try to share people share with people is um, that there is a lot of hunger and demand for information about food and ag. There are fewer people involved in food and ag. So there's a real opportunity. And I encourage people to get engaged in those conversations. Um, you can defend what you do, but you probably need to do it without being defensive. Um, and sometimes uh, when you engage with people, you might figure out you need to do things differently. But I think the reality is that farmers are being talked about a lot. And so they might as well be in the conversation and, and be a part of it. Fantastic. You've been listening to part two of what we're going to call the food police, a visit with Jason Lusk on the business of agriculture podcast with me. Please join me next time. I very much appreciate your support. Thanks. Till next time. I'm out.